Good morning. Today we are talking about prayer, and so I thought I would just pray for us to begin the message. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would speak to us out of your word. I ask, Father, that you would let your, your word that is living and active pierce into our hearts, not just to be something that we learn or we know, that you would affect us at our core, and that we would be, we would be compelled to take action on your word. That as we leave this time of worship, we would be more like you. Walking uh, and talking, looking and living and loving more like you. I pray, Father, that right now your Holy Spirit be present uh, in your church. Wherever we are, we're scattered all over the place. But I pray you'd be present in your church right now, speaking to us. I pray that in your son, Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we are talking about prayer. There's one verse in James. James is a letter that was written by a guy named James toward the end of the Bible. And there's one verse in there that has always intrigued me. It's James 5, verse 16. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's just that simple. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. There's three parts to that little verse. There's the prayer. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So there's the prayer and the effect. It's powerful and effective. And in the middle is the righteous person. That intrigued me for a long time. And for a long time, I dropped the middle out of the verse. I took the beginning and the end. I put them together like they belonged that way. And in my mind, whenever I would read these words, this is what I would hear. I would hear the prayer is powerful and effective. And for a long time, I thought of prayer that way. That if I just said the right words, if I just said, Dear Heavenly Father, and then I phrased everything just right, and if I finished with, in Jesus' name, amen, that it was getting powerful and effective. I don't know, maybe you've thought that too. Maybe you have forever thought of prayer that way, almost like it's a wish list that you have to phrase correctly, you have to lay out there correctly so that it can be received and heard. And as long as you do your part in phrasing it right or saying it often enough or loudly enough, then whatever you prayed for will happen because it's powerful and effective. The prayer is powerful and effective. And for a long time I thought of it that way. And I would pray for whatever, whatever I wanted, whatever caught my eye, whatever desires I had, whatever would make my life easier or more comfortable or more convenient, I would pray for. And then if it didn't happen, I was frustrated. I would question, why didn't it happen? Because I prayed and I said the right words, but it didn't happen. But it's supposed to be powerful and effective. And then one day it dawned on me that there's that little phrase that right in the middle of the verse. The prayer is powerful and effective of a righteous person. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, and it dawned on me that prayer is not, that the most important thing about prayer is not, in fact, getting the answer I want. That, that praying is not about getting what I want. In fact, I preached a message about a year ago that used this statement, maybe you remember this, that prayer is not about getting the answer that I want. In fact, there's a verse in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, it says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And then Jesus said, For everyone who asks receives. 
the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And it seems like Jesus is saying, if you ask for it, if you look for it, if you long for it, if you seek it, you're going to get it. Seems like Jesus is saying, the prayer is powerful and effective. But we have to remember that the the character of the one praying matters. We have to remember that the heart of the one praying matters. We have to remember that the mind of the one praying matters. Because the truth is, is the prayer of a righteous person, a person who seeks to be right with God and right with people, is powerful and effective. See, the most important thing about prayer is not getting what I want. The most important thing about prayer is being the kind of person that God can trust with an answer. That's the most important thing about prayer. It's being the kind of person that God can trust with an answer so that that when I ask for something, my heart aligns with God's heart enough so that when I ask for it, I'm asking for something that honors the heart, the will, and the kingdom of God. And when my heart aligns with the heart of God, then when I pray for it, it's something that God is already bringing, so I align with him, so then the prayer is powerful and effective because I'm right with God. I am righteous in my life, in my pursuit of holiness. The most important thing is being the kind of person God can trust with an answer. That's what we want to be. That's what I want to pray like, someone that God can trust and send with his answer. Jesus talks about this. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount, this message that Jesus preached to this crowd on a mountaintop, he talks about prayer. And, and, and he even, in the middle of it, I think he says the same thing James is saying, but just in different words. Let me rephrase that differently. I think James says the same thing Jesus said in his own words, because Jesus said it first. And we want to build everything. James wanted to build everything off of Jesus' words instead of trying to fit him into our little box. I want you to pray the way Jesus said to pray. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is speaking, middle of a sermon. And Jesus says in verse 9, he says, This then, this then is how you should pray. Now it's important to catch this, and I put it in capital letters for you. This then, he says, is how you should pray. He doesn't say this then is what you should pray. He says this is how you should pray. He's going to go on in just a moment. He's going to lay out this thing that we often commonly call the Lord's Prayer. And he's going to share these words. And for generations, for centuries, people have memorized these words. And they have recited this prayer as though it's some kind of magical, magical uh phrasing, a magical paragraph to say to get what we want to get, as though when I pray, I just say what Jesus said here, but Jesus doesn't say this is what you should pray. He says this is how you should pray, and I believe what we're going to find is, just like James talked about a righteous person, Jesus is going to describe somebody who aligns with the heart of the Father. He says this is how you should pray. The first phrase in this prayer, this how we should pray, he says, our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He says, holy is your name. 
In fact, in the Old Testament, there's a man named Joseph. There's a man named Joseph. Maybe you're familiar with the life of Joseph where he was a young boy. He had a bunch of older brothers and a father that loved him very much. In fact, all accounts show that his father favored him over his older brothers and gave him special privileges along the way, which caused his older brothers to not look very fondly at Joseph. One day, Joseph gathers his family up, his, his parents and his brothers, and he says, I've had a dream. I've had a dream. And in my dream, these things happened, and the, the interpretation of the dream is that in my dream, I was standing, and you were all surrounding me, and you all bowed down to me. You all bowed down to me, and I stood over you as somebody who is superior to you. I'm better than you. And see, Joseph as a young man, he was, he was arrogant, and he was proud, and he lifted himself up over his brothers. Well, his brothers didn't like that much, and they, they proceeded to uh, make a plan to take Joseph down. And one day, as Joseph was walking out the, into the field to check on them, they hatched their plan. And they grabbed Joseph, and they, they, they stripped off the, 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 the coat that his dad had given him, this treasure that his dad had given him. And then they threw Joseph down into a dry well. And some, some guys came by that were buying slaves to take to Egypt to sell, and they sold Joseph. Joseph, their brother, into slavery, and Joseph was taken off, and he was sold as a slave in Egypt, and he was sold to a man named Potiphar, and he, he served Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. One day, Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph, and Joseph was taken. He was thrown into prison, and while he's in prison, while he's in prison, one of the, the other prisoners says, I had a dream, and I, I don't know what this means. Can anybody help me know what this dream means? And Joseph says, well, I'm going to paraphrase, but he says, well, God and I, we can tell you what your dream means. We, we, we can do it. God and I together, we can help you out. And he proceeds to interpret the dream. And you see where Joseph was a young man, he was the center of the universe. Now Joseph has allowed God to enter the center with him, but he's still sharing that spotlight. God and I can do this. And Joseph remained in prison for a few more years. And then there was another dream. Actually, this time it was the king of Egypt had a dream. And he said, can anybody interpret this? And they remembered that Joseph had helped before, so they came to Joseph and said, hey, we have a dream. Can you interpret this dream? And Joseph says, well, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. But God can. He says, I can't. I, I can't do it. Only God can do this. Only he can do this. I can't. He can. I can't. And in saying that, Joseph effectively, for the first time in his life that we read through in Scripture, the first time ever, Joseph steps out of the center of the universe. He steps out of the spotlight, and he gives all the glory and all the honor to God and to God alone. He said, I can't do it, but God can. He says, our Father in heaven, holy are you. Hallowed is your name. I'm not in the middle, but you are the center of the universe. See, when Jesus looks at you and says, this is how you pray. You say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What, what he's saying is, I'm not the center of the universe. When you pray, you begin your prayer by remembering who God is 
and who you are not. God is the center of the universe. You are not. God is the one that supports your family. You're not. God is the one that holds it all together in your life. You're not. And so you give God that place of honor. You give God that place of glory. You give God that holy spot. And you step out. That's how you begin to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The second phrase of this prayer is this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how you pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. You remember that when you pray, you're not asking for what you want. You're not asking for what gets you excited and for what your desires are. You're not trying to get something more for yourself or to, to build a kingdom of your own. You're not trying to get power for yourself. You don't go back to the, the misinterpretation of James 5 and say, well, the prayer is powerful on my behalf. You don't say that. You pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you remember, you remember that God's will, when we pray for God's will, that his will on earth, it always comes through the hands of his people. You remember that? That you, as one of God's people, as his son, his daughter, his emissary, his ambassador to a broken world, when you pray for God's kingdom to come, his will to be done, you are asking for it to be done through your hands. It's always been done that way. Always. Back in the Old Testament, we we can look back and see all kinds of examples in the Old Testament of this. Uh, Moses. Moses, for example, when he goes and he stands before the king and says, let my people go. And these, he throws his staff on the ground. And when he, his hand releases the staff, it turns into a serpent and displays the power of God. When, when Moses takes the people out of Egypt, takes them out of slavery, he leads them toward the, the land that God had promised them. They come up to a sea, to the Red Sea. They have an army coming behind them, pursuing them. They're at the sea, and they don't know what they're going to do. Moses holds a staff up, and the sea parts. I could read that, and I could be like, man, Moses had some serious mojo going on. Moses did something impressive and something awesome right here. Held his staff up, but then I remember Moses, like Joseph had learned to, Moses put God in the center, and he stepped out. And when he gets here to the sea, he says, God, what are we going to do? And God says, hold your staff up, and I'll part the sea. And so Moses' hand lifted the staff up. And God did a miracle through the hands of Moses. The people continue on. They get to the, the promised land. And they eventually enter the promised land led by Joshua, their current leader. Come to a city called Jericho. These massive, tall, thick walls with these, with these uh, powerful weapons and embankments all around this city. And they come to this city called Jericho. And Joshua says, God, how are we going to defeat this? What are we going to do? They, they're, they're waiting here. What are we going to do? And, and God says, okay, Joshua, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take the people, and you're going to walk around the city. You're going to walk around the city, and you're going to be quiet. Just be, be quiet. And then go to sleep. Get up the next day. You're going to do it again and again 
and again for six days. And on the, seventh, on the last day, you're going to go up and you're going to walk around it and around it and around it. You're going to shout. And when you shout, the walls will fall. And sure enough, that's what they do. And the walls fall in. And they get the city. I ask you, do you think God needed Joshua and the people to go for a walk so that he could perform a miracle? Because I don't. I think when we pray for God's will to be done, for his kingdom to come on earth like it is in heaven, I think we're surrendering ourselves, aligning ourselves with his heart and saying, use my hands to do that. Jesus, in the Gospels, the, the very first miracle even that he performed, he, he goes to a wedding. And at the wedding, they run out of wine, and Jesus says, go get some water, and they bring it out, and then they start pouring this water, and as they pour the water out, it turns into wine. It's this incredible miracle, and everybody's blown away by it. But Jesus didn't just snap his fingers and say, go get the wine. He didn't just say, the water has now been changed. Jesus told his servants, his disciples, and the servants of the wedding to go get it. And through their hands, it happened. When Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. He's, he's, not, say, he's not telling us what to say. He's telling us how our life should reflect the prayers that we're praying. You be a person. You be a person that steps out of the center and lets God be in the spotlight. You be a person that says, here's my hands. Work through my life. Let me, let me, let me let your kingdom come through me. Let, do a miracle in these hands. That's what we say. That's how we pray. He goes on. He, he says, this is how you should pray. The next verse says, give us today our daily bread. We pray for provision. You see, we want to ask that God would provide for our needs. You, you know, Jesus didn't say, this is how you should pray now. Pray this. Give us today our daily convenience. He didn't say that. He didn't say, give us today our daily lottery winning ticket. He didn't say that. He didn't say, this is how you should pray. Give us today the vehicle I've always wanted, or give us today the relationship I've longed for, or give us today that, that feeling of justification I've been chasing after. He didn't say that. He said, this is how you should pray. Our Father, take the spotlight, work your kingdom through my hands, and provide for our needs along the way. He didn't even say, give us today a cure for a virus that is making life kind of different. He didn't, he didn't say, pray like this. He, he didn't say, God, to give us today a vaccine that will take away all my worries so I can go back to life as normal. He didn't say, give us today the, the perfect mask so we can go back to our building and have church services again. He didn't say that. He said, pray for your Father, who is a provider, to provide for your needs. Back to the Old Testament, when the Israelites were walking through and they were journeying to the land God had promised, they were hungry. 
they were hungry and they they prayed and they asked Moses to talk to God and said, "We provide for us." And God did, in the form of a thing called manna, and it would fall on the ground. They would wake up in the morning, they would go out, and there would be manna all over the ground. And they were to go pick up the manna. And on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, they would go out and they would pick up just enough manna for that day. Just enough manna for the one day. The day before the Sabbath, they would pick up enough for two days so they could rest on the Sabbath day. They would go out and just pick up just enough manna for that day. And if they took up more than they needed for one day, if they tried to hoard a resource, if they tried to compile this this extra reserve stock, then they would wake up the next day and what they had hoarded, what they had compiled, it would have rotted overnight. Because God said, just take enough for the day. That's it. See here, we have we have a thing in, in our nation, in our culture, where we we look to the future and we try to stockpile extra. We try to, to, to hoard all these things and to, to put it away, even if you are not typically somebody who does that. You've been tempted here lately. As everybody's buying all the toilet paper and they're buying all the hand sanitizer and they're buying all the meat and they're buying all these things, you've been, t- I know you have because I have, been tempted to hoard all these things. And it's been a reminder to me that I'm a part of a kingdom with a father who says, I will provide what you need. It might not be everything that I would like or that I want, but it's what I need. Just like the Israelites. Just like the Israelites. We're not a people that hoard, that, that hold back. We are people that are generous. So we trust that God will provide for today, and we give to provide for others. That's what we do. Give us today our daily bread. The next verse, Jesus says, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Jesus actually talks about this very thing. He, he skips and talks about it a little bit more. I'm going to jump there with you about two verses ahead, he says here in verse 14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And now what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying if you forgive, you'll be forgiven. He's not saying that that you'll only be forgiven if you forgive, and so you need to earn your forgiveness by forgiving other people. That's not what he's saying here. If that were true, then we would be tempted to run out and earn our way to heaven. But we know everything in Scripture is consistent, that we cannot earn a ticket to heaven. Not by how much money we give or how much forgiveness we give. We cannot do it. We, we gain an eternity with the Father by the surrender we have to his heart, to his will, by accepting his invitation to live like he does. That's what we get. And so when Jesus talks in verse 14, and when he says to forgive those who have debts against you, he says to forgive those who sin against you and your Father will forgive you. He's not saying forgive to earn something. What he's meaning, right in the context of everything Jesus taught, he's saying that when you have experienced 
the incredible forgiveness of Jesus. When you've experienced the grace that comes through the cross, when you've experienced the hope that comes through the resurrection, when you've experienced that kind of forgiveness, and the Father says, I know that you've betrayed me, but I forgive you anyway. When you've received that, then you are, you are excited, you are eager, you are desperate to show that kind of forgiveness, to give it to somebody else. That's what you do. When you have really, truly, entirely been forgiven, then you go forgive other people with joy and with excitement and with enthusiasm because you want to give away the beauty and the incredibleness of what you've received. That's what you do. And so Jesus says to forgive those who have debts against you. And then he says in verse 13, he says, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. You see, the evil one, the enemy, Satan, he is always constantly attacking. He's constantly moving against us. He wants nothing more than for us to abandon our place in the kingdom of God. And so he tempts us continually to pull us away. He says, well, you want something and you didn't get it. He says, just go get it by any means necessary. He tempts us away. He says, somebody was angry to you, so you just get revenge back on them. It'll feel really good. And he tempts us in any way that he can. He says, somebody looks attractive, so go get that person. He tempts us to throw away marriages and to throw away relationships to go after things. He tempts us to go after money and to go after popularity and to go after political gain. He tempts us in all kinds of things because ultimately what the enemy, what the evil one, Satan, what he wants is to steal and to kill and destroy you. That's what he wants. And so Jesus says, this is how you pray. You ask the Father to not lead you into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil and to protect us from temptation. You ask the Father to protect us so that we can live a life free from attack, so we can live a life more aligned more consistently in line with his heart and his kingdom. That's how we pray. Jesus says, this then is how you pray. God, you take the center. God, use my hands to do your will. God, provide what I need so I'm not locked into fear and worry, but I can live in hope with joy. God, forgive me because I'm forgiving other people. I'm not holding grudges. Pray, God, protect me from temptation. Keep me away from temptation so that I can be free from attack, so I can live with, with, with joy and I can invite others into your kingdom too and not run from you. And when I pray like that, what I discover is that my heart is getting right with him. And what I discover is my heart is aligning with his. And what I discover is that when I look in the mirror, I begin to see, I begin to see a righteous person coming out of me. 
I begin to see myself being transformed into a righteous person. And then I remember what James said in, in chapter 5, verse 16. He says, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. And I begin to realize, wait a minute, my life, as I've been praying the way that Jesus told me to pray, as I've been praying like this, I'm beginning to be a righteous person, and if I'm becoming a righteous person, then my prayers are becoming powerful and effective, and I begin to realize that prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful, but it's not, it's not powerful for getting my will done in heaven. It's powerful for getting God's will done on earth, and I read James 5.16 completely differently now, completely differently. I no longer read it that prayer is powerful and effective for what I want, so God, give me, give me, give me. And it's like this glorified Christmas list, or it's like I'm going to Grandma's house right before my birthday, and i got to get all the hints in about all the things that I want. That's not what prayer is anymore. I realize that when I pray how Jesus told me to pray, then my life, my heart, and my mind begin to look like a righteous person, and I become a righteous person, and I realize it's like the Apostle Paul wrote, I'm, I'm being transformed as this living sacrifice. I'm being transformed in my mind, in my heart. And I realize, as it all clicks, that prayer is powerful. It's just not powerful for what I used to think it was powerful for. It's just not powerful for getting what Adam wants. But prayer is powerful for getting what God wants. For what God wants on this earth. First John. It says this is the confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And I begin to realize that prayer is powerful. It's just not powerful for getting what I want. It's for getting what God wants. And if I pray how Jesus told me to pray, then I begin to pray things that are according to his will, not mine. And he hears me. And powerful and effective things start to happen in my neighborhood, in my marriage in my parenting, in my friendships, in my finances, in my, in my reputation, in all my interactions. Powerful and effective things start to happen. And people see and changes because it's, it's powerful not for getting what I want, but for getting what God wants. What does God want? God, he, he wants one thing. God wants one thing. It's, it's been consistent and clear from, from the very beginning, from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis to the, the very end of the Bible in Revelation, God never wavered. He wants one thing. He wants all people to recognize him for who he is and to put him in the spotlight and to surrender their lives and to live in his kingdom. That's the one thing. In the beginning, he, he told Adam and Eve to spread out and multiply to fill the earth with people who would recognize who God is. When, when the earth was flooded and, 
There was sin, and God said, I'm just going to start it over, and he flooded everything. He kept Noah's family alive on the ark to preserve them, and when the, the flood had receded and Noah came out, he said it again. He said, Noah, go spread out in the whole earth. Fill it up. Fill it up with people who recognize me for who I am. And, and, and Jesus said, and at the end of his life, after he resurrected out of the tomb, before he ascended to heaven, he said it. Most famously in Matthew chapter 28, he's, he said, now go out and preach the gospel and make disciples and baptize them and teach them everything I've taught you. Teach them to know me. We read at the beginning of the book of Acts where Jesus had ascended to heaven and right before he did though, he told his, his disciples, wait and then you're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria at the ends of the earth. You, you spread out and teach everybody to know me. All through the rest of the New Testament, that's what they're doing. They're helping people to know God. And here today, that's what we do. That's what we do. We're helping people find God because God's searching for them. He wants one thing, one thing. And if I pray the way Jesus told me to pray, I put God in the center. I ask for his kingdom to come through my hands. I, I ask him to provide along the way to forgive me because I am excitedly forgiving others and to protect me from temptation so I won't abandon his cause and his kingdom. If I do that, then I begin to want one thing too. And when I do, my prayers are powerful and effective. And so are yours. And so this morning, what I want to do, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to follow Jesus. I want one thing. I, I, I mean, I could talk about other things I want. I, I would love to meet again. I'm looking forward to when we can meet again in person. Do that, but that's not it. I, I want one thing. I want you and every person you know and every person I know to find God and to know him the way I do. I want one thing. And I'm praying for one thing. And I'm praying how Jesus told me to pray. And so today, I want to invite you, if you've never followed Jesus, to do that today. Start to follow Jesus today. To surrender your spot in the spotlight and let Jesus in the middle of it. Today. Right now in the comments, just put on there, I want to follow Jesus and we can help you pursue him. I want that for you. I invite you to that. If you've been following Jesus for some time now, I want you to want the same thing that I want, which is the one thing that God wants, and that is for everybody you know to know him. And so I challenge you today to begin praying like Jesus told you to pray. Don't recite these words as some kind of magic incantation, but you start praying the way he told you to pray. Which will, which will transform you into a righteous person and your prayers will be powerful and effective. They will align with his heart. I'm going to pray with us. I'm going to pray with you right now. After I pray, we're going to sing a song and then I'll show back up here on your screen and I'll invite you to the next step. But I just want to, I want to lead you one time in praying how Jesus told us to pray. Let's pray together.
Father God, I ask that you would be more visible in my life than I am. I ask that you would be more more powerful in my life than I have ever thought I was. I ask that you would be present in everything that I do and everywhere I go. And Father, I ask that you would work through my hands to bring your kingdom to bear in this planet right now. I ask, Father, that you would let your will be done in my family and in my neighborhood and in my town and in my church and in the school district in my town and in my government and in this nation and in every nation on the face of the earth. I pray your will would be done, and I pray that it could be done through my hands, that I would be willing to do whatever you call me to do whenever you call it. And Father, I pray that as I am focused, laser focused on that one thing, that you would provide for my needs along the way and for the needs of my family so I would not ever one time break away from my mission out of fear for tomorrow. And Father, I pray that you would forgive me when I have failed and when I've sinned. I pray you would forgive me, and I pray that you would forgive me just the way that you are teaching me to forgive other people. And Father, I pray that you would keep the evil one away so he would not tempt me with anything that will turn my head from your kingdom's cause. I pray you would protect me from any temptation that is out there so that I would, not be, I would never be unfaithful to you or to my wife or to my kids or to my mission, but I'd be faithful always to who you made me to be. And Father, I pray. I pray that as, as I live a life that prays this way, that you'd be turning other hearts to you too. I pray, God, that you would do a sweeping, a sweeping movement across this town, community, this state of people turning back to you. And I pray, Father, that I would be able to celebrate along with everyone else in this church, in every church everywhere, as a part of the movement. I pray if there's anyone here now watching this today, they would surrender to you today. And I pray, Father, for those that have been following for some time, that we would be reinvigorated for your mission. And we would dive forward in it again. I pray all these things. In Jesus' name.